Hello, everyone. Welcome to Paradigm Shifters. We're going to have a lot of interesting fun for you today with this particular guest who's gone in and out of some of the most fascinating niches in life possibilities. Uh, meet Liberty Miller. Hi, Liberty. Hello. Hi. And Liberty recently wrote a book called The Heart of the Runaway. I've known Liberty off and on for some years, but uh, the book is really a collection of your adventures, isn't it? It is, yeah. How did you start off being such an adventurer? And I know you had a big trauma when you were a teenager, right? Or was it when you were in your early 20s? When I was a teenager, I was 16 and my brother was murdered. Okay. Talk a bit about the murder. Yeah, and like I said, I was 16 and, you know, it's hard enough to be a 16-year-old girl, but then you throw homicide into the hormonal mix and it just makes it that much more difficult. Um, you know, I was raised in a very small town in Oregon and my father was not around. And so my older brother was everything to me, you know, mm -hmm. my brother, my dad, my best friend, he was everything. And when I was 16, he was murdered on his 21st birthday by oh three gosh. of our friends. By three of his his friends as well? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like I said, small town, so all of us were friends. We grew up with these three guys. Hmm. And why, so, did they, why did they murder him? Over drugs. Oh. Over marijuana. Hmm. Over marijuana. Oh, my gosh. That's even worse yeah. than yeah. any drugs are probably very difficult. But over marijuana, especially these days, you go, oh, my gosh. Exactly. Yeah, this was back in the day before it was legal, and mm -hmm. the guy that, that killed him, the one that actually pulled the trigger, was growing a pot plant in his bedroom at his parents' house, and the plant got stolen, and for some reason he thought it was my brother, so they killed him, and then it turned out that it was not my brother who stole the plant. Wow. What happened to the young man who shot him? Uh, he's in prison in Oregon. He got 25 years, so he will be up for parole in uh, about three years, I believe it is. Well, did the other fellows the other as two, accomplices, did they also get nailed? Yes and no. They got time served. So between the time when they were arrested and when it went to trial was one year. Mm -hmm. And so they got time served, so they both did one year in county jail and then were released. Oh, wow. How do you feel about that? Well, for a long time, I was upset about that. And especially since the one guy was still in our hometown, the other guy moved to Portland. But the one that was in our hometown, we actually... And my family and I ended up forgiving him and kind of adopting him, and he is part of our family now. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That was uh, pretty yeah. powerful, wasn't it? It, it was. It, it took me a long time, about five years, to get to the point of, of forgiving him. But I got there, and, and now I love him dearly. He's definitely a brother to me now. Mm -hmm. It's been that supportive older brother. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So tell me about you, and when did you start adventuring? Did you stay at home for the next five years, or did you take off? Were you a runaway then, like your book calls it? <laughs> well, I have always wanted to be a runaway, even when I was a little kid. <laughs> I would always tell my mom that I wanted to move somewhere else, even if it was just the next town over. Mm -hmm. I wanted to always just go, and I didn't really understand why I had that feeling or what that feeling was. And when I was in fifth grade, my grandparents took me camping on the Oregon coast. And next to us was this couple that lived in a converted school bus. Ah. And they took us into the bus and gave us a tour of their home. And they lived in it full time and had kids that they homeschooled. And that was the moment that I realized what that feeling was, that I wanted to be a nomad, that I wanted to travel and kind of be a gypsy. <clears throat> but of course, you know, I was young. And once I graduated high school, I went to college and then I got married and, you know, had a corporate job in Seattle. 
and did the whole American dream thing, but it wasn't what I wanted, but I didn't know how to have what I wanted, you know, traveling around the world. And by chance, I met people involved with the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. They do marine conservation. Mm-hmm. And they offered me a foreign correspondent position over in Japan. And I had gone to school for photojournalism. And so within one week, I decided to quit my job and divorce my husband and move to Japan. And that's what started it all. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So your psyche, your soul was all lined up to be a much more expansive person. So your name, Liberty, where did that come from? Did you call yourself Liberty later? No, um, my biological father named me that, um, you know, he just, and I go by Libby. That's the nickname that my family has always called me. But my biological father always called me Libby or called me Liberty. I'm sorry. And, you know, he doesn't really know where that came from. He said that just one day he started calling me that and it seemed to fit. Isn't that remarkable? Oh. Because I, yeah. I, I know you enough, well enough, to know that Liberty is probably the best name in the whole wide world for you. Almost like <laughs> yeah. your soul is primed <laughs> right. to uh, uh, expression, right? It's not just expression, it's existence in various situations, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So talk about Sea yeah. Shepherd. So what happened when you went to Japan? And uh, and how did that impact you on that uh, particular, what, boat? Uh, I was not on a boat with Sea Shepherd in Japan. Um, in Japan, I worked at a place called The Cove. And there is a documentary about it that won an Academy Award in 2009. Wow. And it's about a dolphin water that happens at The Cove. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was a land-based campaign with Sea Shepherd. Um, it changed my life in so many good ways and so many bad ways. As you can imagine, watching dolphins die on a mass scale every single day really messes with your mind a bit. Mm-hmm. What, you, what year was this? Along, and did you stop that? I mean, did you people get the opportunity to stop it? What, what year was this, Liberty? This, this was 2010 and 2011 that okay. I was over there. Um, and no, it has not stopped. It is still happening, you know. So you're saying that it still goes on. The dolphins um, are still being slaughtered. And I have heard of many people going there to try and stop it yes oh it's a it's a huge campaign now um there's numerous organizations that go over there every year and try to stop it what about the japanese people um, do the japanese people complain about it too some of them Mm -hmm. yeah some of them do um i did work with several japanese people while i was over there that were against the slaughter Mm mm-hmm so from well, there, where did you go? Happened. So you were there for like a year and a half or two years? Oh, no, I was only there for four months. Okay. and then Yeah, because of my visa. Where did your adventures take so. you from there? Well, after that, I joined, I stayed with Sea Shepherd, but I joined their flagship, the Steve Irwin, in the mm-hmm. Mediterranean. Oh, good. So... What was yeah, that? Yeah, traveled like? all around the Mediterranean. Whoa. Hmm? What were you doing yeah, there? So what, were you, what was your ship focusing on? In the Mediterranean, it's the tuna poaching. Okay. So they, um, down towards the northern part of Africa, they poach the bluefin tuna, mm-hmm. which is an endangered species. So, so we were down there trying to stop the poaching of the bluefin tuna. And how did you do? Um, pretty good, actually. It was a, a very successful campaign. Um, they ended up, after I left the ship, um, Sea Shepherd ended up cutting nets and releasing 800 tuna. Wow. So, wow. Yeah. So, that so was, what happens? Is there violence around this? Are governments getting mad? I mean, what, what happens? Is it very violent? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um as you can imagine, the, the people who are hunting these animals don't like Sea Shepherd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so sure. it, it's 
pretty hostile. They, they don't like us at all. Um, there were a few days on, when I was on the ship that we had some pretty intense interactions with the, the tuna poachers hmm. and, you know, chasing each other around in boats and they were throwing things at us. And, wow. You know, it's pretty it scary. Heated. So where did you go from there? Yeah. It, um, after I left the Mediterranean, I went to Australia <laughs> and I left, yeah, I left Sea Shepherd and I joined another organization. At the time, it was called Save Japan Dolphins, but now it's called Dolphin Project. Oh, okay. And it's run by Rick Berry, who is the man who stars in the documentary The Cove about oh, really? the okay. slaughter in Japan. Mm-hmm. So I joined his organization and I went to Australia and started his first international chapter of Dolphin Project. Okay. And how was that? Was it was it well received? Or tell us about that. It was very well received. Um, I had never started an international chapter before, so I was just kind of blindly fumbling my way through it. But it was very well received, and it still exists today and is doing very well. Hmm. And what kind so, of what kind I of people get involved? Are they sort of all young, or are they all ages, and are they just really enthusiastic oh. about this? It's all ages, all walks of life. I I have met so many amazing people, just a very diverse group of people around the world who are passionate about marine conservation. It's quite impressive. Wow. Wow. So then where did you go from there? So you're not living in Australia, so I'm assuming you left that environment. (laughs) (laughs) I did leave. Um, I had a one-year visa in Australia, so when that expired, I turned over the chapter of Dolphin Project to um, some Australian citizens, and then I left and went to Amsterdam and joined another group called Blackfish, and they deal with um, all kinds of different fish poaching around the world, Hmm. and I helped them start their organization. It was a brand new startup organization. So I went to Amsterdam and helped them with that. And was that a zesty or was that zesty? Mm-hmm. Was it what? Zesty. I mean, were they kind of like very activist as well? Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And they're doing great. They still exist. They're doing amazing things. Wow. And how long did you stay yeah. there? Um, I was in Amsterdam maybe three months. Hmm. Yeah, not not too long. And, and then, and why would you leave just because you launched their chapter and uh, and you're done, or why? I mean, you're the runaway. I, Did you run away from them? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, because I was only allowed three months on my passport. Right. Okay. So. Yeah, so after the three months, I actually ended up going back home to Seattle. Mm-hmm. But I had been overseas at that point for two years. Oh, wow. Okay. Were you just dying to get yeah. back to Seattle, yeah. or did you just find it very infectious to keep going? Um, at the end of that two years when I was in Amsterdam, I was very tired I had been, you know, running around the world for two years, and and I was a volunteer. All of this was volunteer work. Oh. Um, And so I not only was very tired, I was very poor. I betcha, huh? (laughs) So So you went home to work? I did. Um, The job, the photography job in Seattle that I had when I was married um, and then left to go overseas they asked me to come back. Oh, that was and good. And it was perfect timing. Yeah, I was tired and I was poor and they wanted me to come back. And I, I was ready to go home at that point and start making some money again. Mm. So I went back to, to that job. Well, it's really interesting. So I want to ask personal questions like how did your husband, as you left him, respond to your zest for change and for adventure? <laughs> Well, I guess the way I worded it earlier sounds kind of heartless. I did not just divorce my husband on a moment's notice. We had been having problems for a couple of years, and we had been going through marriage counseling for a year. 
And we decided to divorce. And then I was presented this opportunity in Japan. So we decided to not divorce and instead see how we felt after four months apart. You know, I would go to Japan and we would see how I felt or how we felt when I got back. Mm. And so when I got back, we sat down and talked about it. And it was clear that that we needed to divorce. Mm -hmm. So so we divorced and then I joined the ship. And you're still good friends with him, are you not? We are friends, definitely. We we don't have much contact with each other, but when we do, it's good. We had a, a very good divorce. We didn't fight. I mean, we still talk occasionally. So. I think it's really interesting because you're living uh, interesting because you live a life of uh, what would you call it? Uh, uh, people's agitation about different subjects, in, including your. A uh, friend who was involved in your brother's murder, and yet you're you've got quite a style for uh, turning them all into friends or, or easing conflict. Is that right? Yeah, I think the greatest compliment I've ever received is a coworker at my photography job in Seattle. You know, I didn't really know this woman, but, you know, just from working together, mm-hmm. we weren't friends outside of work, but she said to me one day that I had a way of bringing people together. And that just kind of stuck with me because, you know, that I, I organize events for nonprofits. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm always bringing friends together and, you know, I love talking to strangers and meeting new people. Mm-hmm. So and putting yeah. your and putting your heart in the ring, because it seems to me you usually have projects that have to do with people emerging from oh, yeah. what could be contradiction or contrary behavior, right? Right. It's kind right. of political in a big heart-based way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. But it's interesting because when you're on the boat, the Sea Shepherd, and the other one, mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of it, the Cove. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, the, the different boats you're on. Did the people... The, uh, the one I'm on now? Yeah. That'll do. Um, no, well, I was thinking I of the Australian the one. Oh, oh, yes. That was not a boat. That was land-based. That's Dolphin Project. Oh, okay. I thought that was a boat. Yeah. But it's interesting because yeah. our... Um, it seems that a lot of times that our people are wanting to make a difference... They can also have a lot of, uh, oh, I don't know, difficulty dissonance amongst themselves. Is that right? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of politics and a lot of drama in the marine conservation world. Hmm. That's sad to know, yeah. but it's always kind of wise to know that, isn't it? Yeah, that's part of why I took a big step back from it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the main reason was because I was a volunteer. Mm-hmm. And... I reached the point where I realized that I can't even support myself. So how am I supposed to help anyone else mm-hmm. if I can't even pay my cell phone bill? Mm. So oh, that isn't took good. a big step back from marine conservation. And there is so much drama. And when you're dealing with personal issues or turmoil in your own life, it's very exhausting to then be immersed in this marine conservation world and deal with all of the infighting and drama. Mm-hmm. I just, I couldn't really deal with it anymore. I guess so. there's a bell curve on any organization where you got the movers aheaders and the holders behinders and the uh, ones mm-hmm. who want power. I think that's probably traditional in any group. Do you think? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is frustrating because we all want the same thing. Mm-hmm. We all want dolphins to not die. But yet we're so busy fighting with each other and arguing about how we should stop dolphins dying mm-hmm. that we're not even really paying attention to, to the actual cause. Mm-hmm. It's like having too big a family with parents that are a bit screwed up. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so where where in the world? I mean, you've been all over the place. Uh, what what is your favorite uh, place to be? Where do you think it's the most? What would we say the most uh, optimistically uh, mutually conscious of one another? Where do you think people are acting from their highest good? 
Oh, geez. Is that an unfair <laughs> I question? I have no idea. <laughs> oh. Which ones did you like best? Which places did you like best? I'm sure there's not I just really, one. No, definitely not. Um, I, I did love Japan. I felt very much at home in Japan. The, the people are absolutely wonderful, very kind people, a very clean country, a very safe country, and gorgeous. I mean, the, the scenery is stunning. Mm. I also really liked Amsterdam because I love history. Mm-hmm. So I, I loved living there. Um, I'm currently in Alaska and absolutely love it here. But I'm not doing marine conservation up here. What are you doing up there? Uh, I work on the National Geographic boat. So I guess I kind of am doing conservation. Um, So the National Geographic boats, they run in southeast Alaska, like through the Inside Passage area. Mm -hmm. And they really do promote and foster um, conservation and environmentalism. Mm -hmm. So I'm a naturalist aboard the boat. So I get to talk to people about Alaska and tell them what they're seeing very amazing. What do you like about Alaska? Oh, it's just, it's filled with magic and it's so hard to explain unless, unless someone sees it. You know, it is filled with magic. Every inch of this state is magical and it's majestic and pristine. You know, it's kind of its own little world. We're so far away from the lower 48 that it is almost its own world and does it attract eccentric people i've always thought it does but i don't know <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> it definitely does alaska is the place where people go to run away from things <laughs> <laughs> you mean I from the great western systems oh yeah okay yeah. <laughs> yeah. So would would you stay there? I don't think you'll stay any particular place for the rest of your life, will you? You know, I don't know. Um, I have reached that point again in my life where I am tired. Mm-hmm. And I have been thinking about staying the winter here in Alaska. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't decided yet because I'm not sure if I know how to stay. But Alaska you mean winters. having a job and so on. Right, and and just staying in one place. Mm-hmm. But Alaska is the type of place that if I decide to stay for the winter, then I'm committed because there's so much snow, I can't just drive out of here if I want to. <laughs> <laughs> so. and which town are you near? Are you uh, near, um, let me see, I should be able to figure that out. I am in a town called Seward, Seward that's and it's right. about two hours south of Anchorage. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty so dark it's on in the, the winter. Peninsula. Okay. Oh, lots of snow, lots of ice. We're right on Resurrection Bay, uh-huh. so it gets very icy, very windy, cold snow. Do you mind? Oh, yeah. Do you mind that? Uh, I don't mind it if I don't have to drive in it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, obviously I have to drive to my job every day. So Well, and I know Alaska can't just shut down because it's winter. So are there jobs? Would you have a job? Is the National Geographic job still there for you? The well, that boat does not run in Alaska in the winter, but okay. they run down in Baja. Oh. So I would be flying down to work. So. I would be away from Alaska for several weeks at a time. Well, going to the Baja in in option to oh, being yeah. in, in the cold and I think that's a wonderful balance. Good on you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and so um I also know this. I mean I'm I'm really proud of you that you ha- your family had the courage to uh befriend this fellow that was involved in your brother's murder. And have you become fri- you. friends with the other fellow who's still in uh I think there's one other one, right? That is still in jail in prison. I have not. Um, I mean, he and I grew up together, so we do know each other, but we have not seen each other since he went to prison. Okay. And that's something that's been on my mind recently because he is up for parole in a couple of years, and 
I have been contemplating reaching out to him. And I don't know which direction I'll go yet. It's a very scary thought mm-hmm. to talk to him and potentially go go visit him in prison. But it's something that I've I've really been thinking about a lot lately. Now tell me this: Don't you also go ahead and volunteer in a, in a, some prison? I don't know which prison now at this point. I I do. Yes. Um, there is a maximum security prison for the state of Alaska here in Seward. Mm-hmm. And I have been volunteering out there since May. Okay. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Like, first of all, why is it because yeah. of your relationship uh, with your brother and that huge uh, tragedy? Uh, there's something in you that really wants to help people transform. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um how the the prison thing here in Alaska came about was last summer I was in Seward and I was working at a cafe and one of our regular customers was a pastor at the local Lutheran church here in town mm-hmm. and he and I would chit chat you know when he would come in to get coffee he did not know anything about my brother because obviously that's not something you just share right away Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, but this year when I came back to Seward I was working at that cafe again and this pastor came in and we were talking about my book and I had said that I had just published a a book in March well he read the book and obviously found out about my brother and he has volunteered off and on at the prison as a chaplain out at the prison. And he shared my book with the inmates. And they asked him to invite me into the prison to speak to them about oh, my wow. brother's death. That's wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he came into the cafe one day and told me that the inmates had invited me in to speak to them. And, you know, I'll admit it was a very scary thing to think about going into a male maximum security prison mm-hmm. and sitting down with inmates and speaking to them. But I agreed to do it. And I was very, very nervous the first time I went in, but it was so profound and so powerful and inspiring and everything all at once. And, and, I and why? Going back. Tell us about it. Why was it profound? You know, it's so hard to explain. I don't, maybe it's because my brother was murdered or because these men were not what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. You know, TV and movies teach us that, that people in prison are evil, cold, heartless, savage beings that want to hurt you. Mm-hmm. And that is not the case at all. These men that I work with out at Spring Creek, um, it's called Spring Creek Correctional Facility, um, the men that I work with are so kind and have the biggest heart, and I feel safer and more respected and more cared about in that prison than I ever have at any bar or even walking down the street. Wow. And this is maximum it security? Is- Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's all all men. Hmm. So. And why um, are they in, or do you that, even know why they're in? I know why some of them are in. Um, some of them have shared their stories with me. Mm-hmm. Most of them are in for murder, mm-hmm. and a good portion of them are in for life. Hmm. So oh. it's yeah. And are they all around your? I, are there any around your age? Are they all older, or what's the? Age range. Uh, there's a, a, a no. There is a wide age range. Um, there's some that are are pretty young. One of the guys I work with is about uh, 26, 27, something like that. Um, you know, all the way up to men, probably I'm guessing in their late 40s, early 50s. Mm-hmm. So, so how many come to your talks? Like, is well, it 40, 50, 12. It's It's been different every time. The first time I was in, I only spoke to one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, the second time I was in, I talked to a group of maybe 40. 
Um, and then I talked to a group of about 15. Um, but now I'm a part of groups that, that the inmates have started. Like I have joined the addictions group, which is like, um, you know, like rehab in prison. Mm -hmm. So I'm a part of the addictions group and there's maybe 20 of them. Um, and I go, and it's not just me talking to them. Like, you know, we all go around the circle and share our story. Mm -hmm. So I'm just part of that group. Um, yeah. And I, I work with the restorative justice group. And And what's restorative justice? What is restorative justice? It's a really fantastic uh, concept that focuses on um, reform instead of punishment. You know, instead of just locking these guys up and throwing away the key and treating them like animals, it's about using the time that they have in prison to make them better people. Hmm. And this is a group that, that the inmates started. It is a nationwide um, concept. So a lot of prisons in the country have a restorative justice program. Hmm. But Spring Creek is kind of taking that one step further. The inmates are the ones that wanted to start this group. And they put together a pitch and presented it to the warden. And he said, let's do this. Let's run with it. So, you know, it's the way that the, the inmates that started it, the way that he explains it is, it's forcing inmates to look in the mirror because what they say is, you know, they commit this crime and then they go to prison and they never see that ripple effect of their crime. They don't see the mom who can't get out of bed and cries all day because her son was killed. Mm -hmm. They don't see the 16 year old sister who can't sleep at night because she has nightmares. They're not Exposed to those things. So in their minds, it's between them and the, their victim. Hmm. And so what they want to do is they want to see that ripple effect. They want to see how what they did affects not only their victim, but the victim's family, the victim's friends, the community where it happens. Ah. So they want to, to make amends as best they can and become better people. And so uh, will some of them be, I I guess what's fascinating to me is that you have the ability to help people harmonize within themselves, right? And I'm going, I I wonder if you're having a big impact on them, A or B. Are you seeing people grow out of their, the way their personality, their rage, their abuse has been? Are you seeing that or is it too soon? Are you, I'm fascinated. I, I have. Well, I I think that a lot of that happened before I met these inmates, but it there it's still a work in progress. So I still see it happening. And I, I was in the addictions group a couple weeks ago, and this man, you know, one of the inmates, he was this big, beefy dude with face tattoos. I just very scary looking, yeah. <laughs> and. He was sitting there with his arms crossed and well, then it came his turn to talk and he started talking about his drug abuse and what he did to land himself in prison. And then after he went to prison, his son committed suicide. Oh my gosh. And in the, in the note that his son left, he blamed his dad for abandoning him by going to prison um, and so he, he basically blamed his suicide on his father. And as this man is talking about this, he just starts sobbing. Mm-hmm. And as soon as the first tear rolled down his face, all the other inmates were out of their chairs and had their arms wrapped around him, rubbing his back and saying nice and supportive words to him. And I just sat there dumbfounded. I mean, it was so surreal to see this happening. You know, these men are very open and honest and vulnerable. Hmm. And what, it's really impressive. What about the toughness we hear about? Um, that's definitely there. That's, that's definitely there. You know, these guys are, they are tough, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
you know, they're, they're working on, on themselves, trying to be better people. And that's really impressive and really inspiring. And I think that it's something that, that people in the outside world need to know mm-hmm. that these guys are not the evil people that we perceive them to be. Yes, they committed a crime. And yes, they're in prison. But that does not mean necessarily that they are bad people. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I was listening to a movie review of a new movie about Eichmann, you know, from the Auschwitz and all that uh, ugly stuff <laughs> in Germany, right, the Second right. World War. And the fellow that was, uh, I think he's the, I, I didn't get all the details because I was driving, you know, you get bits of this. But in any case, he was talking, he was a producer, I believe. And he was mm-hmm. saying it's very interesting when you learn more and more about these people. They were not just animals. They were not just evil. A lot of them, you realize, were kind of normal people that for some reason got swayed in this direction or that for a little while. And uh, right. but, and his whole dream as he wrote this movie or produced it was that people would start to realize how precarious it is to be a human being and then tipping into what we call evil or uh, crime can be something that any one of us can do at any given time. And I thought that was right. quite informative. I will definitely go see that movie, which is kind of scary for me. <laughs> right. But I guess Absolutely. you're saying you're saying your version of the same thing, aren't you? Well, yeah. And, you know, I'm part of the addictions group at Spring Creek because I used to have a drug problem. After my brother died, I got very heavily into drugs. Mm. And I relate to those inmates. And, you know, I don't really talk about my drug abuse or my brother's murder to, you know, the average everyday person. A lot of people that know me now don't even know that my brother was murdered Mm -hmm. or, or that I even had a brother or that I used to be a drug addict. Because people that haven't been through it can't really relate to it. And, you know, it's not really something that you brag about. Well, it's something that can be judged without anybody really going in there and learning all about it, right? Well, right. And, you know, knowing me now, you know, that person that I used to be, anyone who knows me now would never be able to fathom that I could have ever been that person. So being a part of the addictions group at the prison and speaking to the inmates about my brother's death, I feel, you know, it's been very cathartic for me because I feel like they are truly the only ones that understand. Mm -hmm. You know, when I talk about my story, they actually get it because they have been through the same thing. One of the inmates said something very powerful to me the other day. He said that, that he and I are soldiers together on a battlefield, but we were just fighting for the opposite side, oh, you know, because I understand murder from the victim's perspective, and he understands murder from the offender's perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, we, I have lived the same life as these inmates, just from a very different side. So could you understand and empathize with his need to murder someone at that point? Do you see what I mean? Is there a way for us to tune into what they're doing or what they right, have done? Right, right. I definitely do. Well, I, I, it's hard to say that I understand it, you know, because most of us would never, you know, we can't comprehend murdering another human being. Mm-mm. However, you know, when I was, you know, in the depths of my drug abuse, I do understand it from that perspective because you're using these drugs that affect your mind, your judgment, everything. And you're with these people that you think love you. You know, they're, they're your family. They're your friends. Like they're your support system, you know, and, but yet they're pressuring you to do drugs. And mm. to do all these other things, like maybe to steal a car or to rob a house, you know, and you feel like you can't say no because, man, that's your family. Mm-hmm. Like they get you, they love you. So you, 
you can't go against what they're saying. Plus you're not thinking straight because you're on drugs, you know, and I did a lot of things when I was on drugs that I would never do as a normal, rational, sober person, Mm -hmm. but I did them when I was on drugs because these people that I thought loved me told me to. Mm -hmm. So, you know, thinking about those things that I did, I can definitely see how, you know, some young man who's, you know, maybe has a rough home life, but finds this, this group, this family on the street and then starts using drugs. And, you know, I could see how, how you could end up killing someone, mm-hmm. you know, because you're not thinking straight and you think that those people are your family and they love you. But then once you get sober, you realize those people never cared about you. Mm-hmm. If they did, they wouldn't be pressuring you to use drugs and commit crimes. Mm-hmm. But you don't see that in the heat of the moment. That's really interesting. And many, many people who get into that stream have been deeply hurt and felt cast aside by what might have kept them right. safe at, uh, in their own environment, mm-hmm. right? You know what I mean by safe? I mean like Absolutely. not aching and driven and all right. of that. So how did you get out of all that, Liberty? How did you step yourself out? Oh, you know, I got so lucky. Um, you know, my, my parents were really fighting for me. Mm-hmm. And I, I really credit them with my survival because, you know, my mother had already lost one kid. Mm -hmm. She was not going to lose another one. So she really fought for me. Hmm. And obviously I did not appreciate that until later. Um, But, you know, I had people that didn't give up on me, but I think the moment that I really changed was um, I had had a bad night and I had overdosed. And the next day, my my brother's best friend told me that my brother had told him that he would give his life if it would keep me off drugs. Oh, my. And, yeah, that was the moment when I realized that I was a horrible person, that I was ashamed of who I had become, and that I needed to be different. And I had just... I was tired of being angry and bitter and burning bridges and hurting my parents. And so I just stopped. And yeah, it was a struggle. It still is a struggle, especially with alcohol. I don't drink at all. But there are times when when I have and when I've really wanted to. So it's a constant battle. But it's worth it because, you know, I'm I'm a better person now well what are your goals when you talk about this i go are your goals to grow to transform to be creative to cover the world what are your goals because you've got some yeah um you know i i don't know if i could specifically put it into words um i want to help people you know and i wrote my book because I want to help some other 16-year-old girl who is out there and going through whatever she's going through that is out of her control and feels alone and lost. Mm -hmm. I never want anyone to feel the way that I used to feel Mm -hmm. because it is a horrible feeling and nobody deserves that. And so I wanted to share my story and my brother's story with the world in the hopes of helping someone else and making them see that they're not alone. No matter how alone you feel, Mm -hmm. no matter how far down to rock bottom you have fallen, you have the strength to come back up, to pull yourself out, to make yourself a better person and to rebuild I think there's another thing that you're good at that you need to talk to us about, too, which is forgiveness. What role do you think forgiveness has to play? It's so powerful. 
you know, on, on the big scale, on the small scale, uh, you know, forgiving the man that was involved in my brother's murder was the beginning of it all. Uh, yeah, and that was very hard for me. Like I said, it took me about five years mm-hmm. to finally forgive him. Um, but, you know, and not only that, that grand scale of forgiveness, but the small scale too, you know, forgiving people who have hurt you in the past, you know, maybe exes or friends that have hurt you on some scale, you know, not being bitter over that, forgiving them and moving on with your life because that bitterness, it will eat you alive. Mm -hmm. It won't allow you to move on, will it? No, not at all. And that feeling of forgiveness is so liberating and so powerful. You know, even if that other person doesn't know that you've forgiven them. If you don't have contact with them anymore, you know, they've moved on with their life. Just knowing inside that you have forgiven that person. And if you run into them on the street, that you can hug them and genuinely ask them, how's your life? Like, I, I care about you. How are you doing? It's a powerful feeling. Mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, when you're talking about addictions, I'm going, I, I'm just musing out loud here, Liberty, but it just seems to me that forgiveness is probably key to getting over addictions, too, self-forgiveness, that sort of thing. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you're right, it is that self-forgiveness, you know, and that's what the inmates are working on at Spring Creek here in Seward, is that self-forgiveness, learning to forgive themselves for what they did because a lot of them you know they're they're not really allowed to have contact with the victim's family mm-hmm. you know or that victim's family hates them and wants them to die and will never forgive them mm-hmm. so learning to forgive yourself when there's anger and hatred directed towards you that takes a lot of strength and a lot of courage. And I'm seeing these men do it every time I go in there. And it is so profound. So you're going to keep doing this work, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. That's why I'm thinking of staying the winter here is because I just can't imagine not going into the prison all the time. Well, if you <laughs> should bizarre, leave, would you, will you continue and go to other prisons or... You know, the warden had mentioned maybe trying to get me into some other prisons around the country. Um, I I definitely am open to that. For now, I would like to focus on Spring Creek just Mm -hmm. because I have built a relationship with these men. So I would like to focus on, on this prison for now, but I'm definitely open to other prisons. One of the things about you is you're not imprisoned by the status quo. In a lot of ways. I know you're a really good person, but you see what I mean? You're not, it sort of makes me smile. I go, now she's not in prison by the lifestyle, which many people are. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's talk again about your book and how people can buy it. And I think it ought to be a movie, frankly. Oh, yeah, that would be great, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so, Let me know if you know how to make that happen. Yeah, I don't, but I do know some people <laughs> that are in the biz, so we could probably throw it out there. Um, but yeah. uh, I really feel like your your light is such that you're going to touch a lot of people. How can they buy your book? And it's called what is it called? The Heart of a Runaway of the Runaway. The, yeah, the Heart of the Runaway. Um, it is available on Amazon um, in either print form or Kindle. Mm-hmm. And then I do have it in several bookstores. So it's in the bookstore here in Seward, Alaska. Um, it's in Village Books in Bellingham, Washington, Elliott Bay Books in Seattle, and Wicked Good Books in Salem, Massachusetts. Nice. Okay, well, keep it going yeah. out there. Are you going to write more, or are you just living through? I mean, right now you're living out these various chapters of uh, helping helping the planet. I guess we could put it that way, right? You know, you're you're an evolutionary force, Miss. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I actually have started writing the second book. Oh, good. And what's it going to be called? I have no idea. I've written two chapters. <laughs> is it going to be more st- of the story or is it something different? 
Well, as of right now, it's just about the prison. So, I mean, obviously the whole book won't end up being just about the prison, but that's all I've written so far. And will you interview people that are in the prison? Uh, Yeah, I've actually started doing that. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, so we'll see. You know, I mean, I have no idea when I will finish it. It took me 20 years to write the first one. Hopefully it doesn't take that long for the second one. Did you start it 20, also, 20 years earlier? Did you start it a long way back? I did. I started it when I was 16, when my brother died. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, I've worked on it off and on for 20 years. Wow. So there would be times when I would go years without even looking at it. So. Well, tell but, me this. Um, Are you going to jump back into the marine world as well, the uh, ecology and uh saving the planet and the animals and sea animals and so on? Well, I've always been, even though I've taken a step back from that, I've always been involved, um, you know, on a small scale, kind of from the sidelines, behind the scenes. And I always will be involved in that because I am so passionate about it. Mm -hmm. But I don't see myself, you know, getting as involved as I used to be. Okay. I mean, right now I need to focus on, on myself, my life, you know, I, I want to focus on the inmates. So. And yeah. they, they really appreciate your influence. Don't they? Tell, tell me this. Do you teach them meditation or anything? Have you done that? I don't. Um, they do have yoga classes. Good. Um, I don't teach them. Mm-hmm. They do have yoga classes. So. Well, I think yeah. uh, um, this is a really wonderful, I mean, your experience on the planet is so incredibly rich, Liberty, is it not? It it really is. I feel so fortunate and blessed and humbled to just be alive, be living the life that I have. Wow. It's so beautiful. Even when it's so hard, it's so beautiful. Oh. So we'll have to say goodbye for now, but I'd sure like to talk with you about your next phase and whatever else you're doing out there. Um, Absolutely. So this is, do you have a website for your book? Um, I have, yes. um, I have a website just for me and my book is on it and it's libertyeliasmiller.com. And Elias is E L I A S. And people I can, can buy the to it. probably buy the book right off your website, can they? Yeah, there. Well, kind of. There's a link to the Amazon page. Super duper. Well, I thank so. you so much for the time you're spending with us today, and I really, I, your whole message is so heartfelt. Your whole life is touching, isn't it? Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, I am so grateful that you asked me to do this. It means a lot to me. Well, it means a lot to me too. And so thank you so much for being a paradigm shifter. And this is Veronica Entwistle saying, look up Liberty Miller, LibertyEliasMiller.com and get hold of her book, The Heart of the Runaway. Wow, what an adventure your life is. So thank you so much for listening and be in touch. This is Veronica Entwistle.com. Thank you.